Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the specialist digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Now, for long-time listeners, you will probably already know who we are. You may have even heard one of our ads on a previous episode of this podcast. But for those of you who don't, here is a short introduction. At Create Engage, we help you create an effective marketing strategy for your consultancy, a strategy that will resonate with your target clients. And then we support you by delivering the campaigns you need to turn that strategy into a reality helping you to build your brand, raise your profile with your prospective clients, and ultimately generate return on investment from your marketing activity. Now, I could tell you about many of the great clients that we work with and the results we've delivered for them. But instead, I'm going to do something much more powerful and something that I would recommend you do for your own marketing. I'm going to let our clients do the talking for us. If you are currently thinking about marketing for your consultancy, you're going to want to listen to this. Create Engage started the process for us. They managed it end to end. They came up with some really creative ideas and we were really happy with the work that they did, which meant that we could just focus on running the business. Not only did we start conversations with clients that we hadn't spoken to before, but also there was tangible return on investment by some work that we were given. They've helped right from the initial shaping of the idea through to helping us work out what our end goal was. They've supported us with the visual identity and our positioning of the brand. We've had an immediate expansion of our network and and have initiated a raft of new conversations with owners, CEOs in in target client organisations and has led to us winning new projects already. One of the greatest compliments, I guess, is that one of our competitors even said that uh, they really like what we're doing with marketing. They wish they could be doing something as good. So from our perspective, we couldn't recommend Create Engage any more than this. I would certainly recommend Create Engage if you're a consulting firm. They really understand consultancies and the sort of challenges we face. And, uh, you know, I don't think you're going to get much better marketing anywhere else. So I wouldn't hesitate to recommend Create Engage. They did a really good job for us. So if you're looking for an agency that can help you achieve the results that our clients just described, then head to our website createengage.co.uk where you can find out more about how we support consulting firms like you. You can download our latest ebook and you can get in touch to talk about how we can help you take your consultancy to the next level through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to today's episode of Climate Consulting. For regular listeners, it is worth saying that this is going to be the last episode of 2022. We will be back in early 2023, early being January, is worth saying. With our next episode, we've got some really exciting guests lined up, some very big guests in terms of our industry, and a whole host of different people that I've already recorded with, I'm recording with, and planning to record in January and February. So we've got a whole host of guests to come. But just in case you are wondering if you open your podcast app in two weeks from today, where the next episode is, it's actually going to be four weeks from today because of that Christmas break. So just so you know. But back to the intro, today's guest, and you've probably already guessed this from the title, But today I am speaking to James O'Sullivan, CEO of Project One. Now, I first came across James when I saw one of his LinkedIn videos, something completely different to anything that I had seen from a consulting CEO before. Now, having seen James like to do things differently, I knew that there would be a great story there and I wanted to get him on the show. And I was very glad when he said yes. 
James's career is a fascinating example of how you don't have to follow that traditional career path to climb to the top in our industry. James started his project management career at Tate and Lyle, of all places, after sending letters to all 100 of the FTSE 100. For those who aren't in the UK, that's the UK Stock Exchange, similar to the S&P 500 in the US. And he was rejected by 99 of those companies. But Tate and Lyle said yes. And that was the start. That gave him a taste for what would become his passion for the next 25 years and see him go on to lead major change programs for the likes of Lloyd's Banking Group and NAB. But James's story isn't just one of contracting success. In 2014, James joined Project One, and after rising through the firm, became CEO earlier this year. With his wealth of experience and his love of doing things differently, I knew that this was going to be a good conversation, and it certainly didn't disappoint. In this one, we go into detail on a whole host of topics that I know you are going to love hearing about and getting James's perspective on, including his early career and actually how that time in in in-house roles set him up for success leading Project One. Project One's unique approach and why they ignore many of the industry norms when it comes to running their business. And the journey that James went on in that transition to becoming CEO and his advice if you are about to undertake a major leadership change in your own firm. Now, it doesn't matter whether you are on the path to becoming a CEO or you're already there. James's candid and straight-talking advice is something that I know you are going to love. So with all of that said, please enjoy today's conversation, the final conversation of 2022 for Climbing Consulting. Have a lovely Christmas, a happy new year, and I hope you enjoy listening to my chat with James O'Sullivan. Well, James, thank you for making the trip to Bath. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be in the West Country. Well, and it's uh, it's actually a, a first for me in that usually it's podcast first and then lunch. We've done lunch first and then podcast. We've had a good chat before this, some of which we will cover, some we might not. Your, your TV choices, I'm a big fan of Below Deck as well. Um, I'm going to check out the car wrapping YouTube that you shared, so I'll definitely do that after. But for those who maybe don't know you, don't know Project One, can you give a bit of background on who you are and, and how you got to to where you are today to kick us off. Yeah, sure. Probably in a different way to most people in consulting. So I did not join a graduate scheme at the age of 21 and come up through the ranks. I've jumped about a bit. So I I always came out of university wanting to work for a FTSE 100 company. I wrote to all 100 of them at the time. I still remember walking into the post office in Putney High Street and asking for 100 stamps. Needless to say, 99 of them didn't reply, but one did, Tate and Lyle Sugar. And I drifted into or went straight into a... HR what training and learning kind of program. And and from then I've done project and program management for the, the the rest of my career. But I did that via high street banking for a good number of years. That took me into the wonderful world of Y2K and UAT, which again gave me another fixation. I then went on looking for a a, a purpose-built job in project and program management before going into consultancy in my late 20s with uh, with Capita. Did some big programs, your, your London congestion charging from design to implementation. And then um, having built a pretty good network up, I did a stint as, I'll say as a contractor, but in reality, it was two big stints, one with an Australian bank and one with a British bank, where I kind of rose up through the ranks running bigger and bigger programs, bigger and bigger budgets before coming into Project One eight years ago. But again, that wasn't by mistake. Terry Holland, who was the previous CEO, but back in those days, the regional director for 
London and the Southeast. We had worked together for 17 years, I think, by the end. And so, you know, I went in again on that network basis. But, I, you know, I loved the concept of Project One, which is still rings true today as we approach our 25th anniversary. So it's a boutique, an SME consultancy. It has a very particular operating model, which is all geared around experienced consultants, kind of your 15, 20 years, therefore putting in program directors, program managers, the leads into big complex change. I think a very succinct overview. And we will dig into all of that and yes, particularly sort of your journey with Project One. I just because I love the idea of the the person in the post office's face when you said a hundred a hundred stabs. Take me back to this because you, know, you mentioned you and we were talking about this at lunch. You, you you weren't academic at school. You obviously went to university, but you weren't sort of again, I wasn't academic there. Academic either. there either. That didn't change. But talk to me about the plan to where did that come from? The, the you know, this the plan to I'm gonna write to all a hundred. I think it was quite a simplistic plan at the time. I'd grown up kind of preferring sport to academic. My brain definitely is not wired in an academic way, but I love sports. I was kind of, I did rugby, I did swimming, I did athletics, were kind of my three things. All the way through university, I was playing sport to a pretty good level and I was at university in London and therefore I kind of, you, you got yourself surrounded by all these people that were coming from like Salomon Brothers and stuff at the time for training. And you kind of went, oh, okay, I've got to go to the bright lights. I've got to drift from Putney into the city. And so I just kind of thought that was the obvious place to start. I knew I wasn't going to be picked up, you know, in the milk rounds and all that kind of stuff. And therefore I thought, well, you've got to go and do this yourself. And what's the most practical way of doing it? I'll just write to them. Now, I don't think it would work in this day and age, but back then in the, you know, mid nineties, it, it seemed like the right thing to do. Clearly, it had a great response, 99 nil responses. <laughs> but it had one. But it had, it had one. one. And that's the key thing, isn't it? You've it got is. to try these things because you just never know. And was this physically handwriting 100 letters? No. we they were. It was typed. It was one that was typed and then just... Oh, it was. So it was Control-F and... Or maybe, maybe Control-F wasn't a thing then, but it was a change name, insert here. It was absolutely the same. But um, it seemed a good thing to do. So as you said, you, I was sat there with you know, the Telegraph or someone, I guess, in, or the Daily Mail probably back in those days, wasn't it, looking at the FTSE 100 and just finding all the, the addresses, writing to the HR function. And I, and I know I'm going a lot back a lot here and I'm not going to dig too much further, but do you remember what the letter said? Was there anything, you know, or maybe the better question is when you asked the person at St. Lyle, why, why were you the ones that replied? Was there What was it that, that stood out to them? I don't remember what the letter said, but I would imagine it was something just along the lines of, I'm a good team player. I do a lot of sport. I've done a business degree, you know, and I live in London. <laughs> uh, as for take, take long it's funny and, and this is something I guess that's carried on throughout my career you get to work with these household brand global names and you have a perception from the outside as to what they're going to be like but in reality often on the inside it's not they're all, they're all quite similar in, in some respects but they need people's help and in reality, that's all that was happening at that point in time was they were about to run what was the largest training scheme, an NVQ scheme, I think it was, back in those days for the whole workforce on the world's largest refinery in, in Silvertown in East London. And they needed people to kind of, in effect, bring that to life. And so it was a very simple conversation because it was all about, can you get on a network with people? Can you go and have all these conversations? We've got X thousand people across a 12-acre refinery. You know, we're looking for people that have, have got the confidence to go and help. And as you said, the teamwork came to play. 
Well, and I think there's something implicit in there around, was it the old, uh, it's a bit of a cliche, but you know, luck is opportunity and, and preparation or luck is opportunity and hard work. And you know, while they may have all been the same letter, finding a hundred, you know, starting with a decent target market of the biggest companies in the UK and going to all of them suggests that, I guess that drive as well. It sounds like academics wasn't your thing, but hard work might've been when you were younger. I'm not saying it's not now, but. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I'll use another word, pra- being practical. Everything to me uh, has always been about finding a practical way to do something. I guess going to those 100 was the easiest thing because they're very, it's a ring fence box, isn't it? I, I probably wouldn't have known where to go if we went below that 100, if I'm honest. And as much as you were, I was sitting on the periphery of a very, very big city or one of the probably second, third, third biggest city in the world. I wouldn't have known how you go door knocking to kind of go, please give me a job. And I knew my academic results weren't great enough to get me the job. So I had to find some way of, of doing it. Well, and it's uh, it's funny because you say you know, it might not have worked now, but almost you've now with the power of LinkedIn, you, you know, you've, you've got a, to our conversation at lunch, just connecting and then DMing someone with your special offer for a new, new thing isn't going to work. But actually the amount of people you can now reach you know, for anyone listening who's maybe in a similar boat, that's probably the way for them to approach it. Or so I, I would say you've got to you've got to stand out in some way, haven't you? I think if if you take something from the base point of academic grades seem the same for everyone, everyone's turning up with nine A stars. Okay, therefore there's no differentiator between those. Yes, the the big houses, the big companies will take an intake each year based on that, but then there are an awful lot of people who don't fit into that space, and you've got to find a way of standing out in the crowd. And we've all seen the the individuals stood outside the tube stations in Canary Wharf handing out CVs. Uh, in LinkedIn, you see people kind of saying, look, you know, I really need something. I need a favor. And if they've got the right network before you know it, it just explodes. You can read the comments. And before you know it, you've got five people just saying, mate, give me a call. Well, great. They've stood out. They've done something different. It doesn't work for everybody, though. So you've got to find you. And you've got to find your way way into it. I think as... Maybe as we come through school, through university, we're indoctrinated to go and drift towards the big companies, or maybe that was just me, I don't know. But there are far more companies out there, aren't there? Far, far more. Oh, definitely. And, and we'll talk later about sort of the difference between big and small and, and, and the pros and cons of both. Um, I'm keen to turn, actually fast forward quite a lot here to Project One. Could you actually share, you know, you mentioned that you'd been sort of contracting for quite a while before, you know, you knew Terry from that time in your previous career, but could you share actually how that opportunity came about? And, and I guess at, at the same time, what led you to, to take it having been a contractor for so long? Because you know, this is a, pod, a consulting podcast. Many people who listen to this will know, you know, if you've been contracting for a long time, it's often it becomes a lifestyle, a long-term career choice. It's not as common to see people do that for a long time and then go back into a consultancy. So yeah, how that came about and, yeah. and what led you to say yes? So I guess there's different types of contractors. And in my mind, I wasn't a jobbing contractor. I went into it through a very known client um, that I'd worked with and kind of transferred across in-house, did another two or three years with them. At that point in time, if I think back, it was kind of at the point where London had been appointed for the Olympic Games. And I was desperate to get to that. With my sporty background, I was like, I've got to work on that. I knew a lot of Deloitte consultants that had got involved in it. But uh, that unfortunately didn't work out. And then at the same time, the whole Lloyd's HBOS integration came about on the back of the finance collapse. And again, through a network connection contact, we had a we had a coffee. And I just kind of said, I would love to do that. 
and uh, and that conversation did bear fruit. And before I knew it, I did two years doing the integration. I did a straight two years then doing simplification of the bank. And by the time I'd finished those two or three things, that was in effect 10 years, ironically. And so in the middle of that, Terry and I had actually worked together. He was my program director. I was his program manager. We got on like a house on fire. I've said it before, in your phone, there are five people. If any of them rang and said, I'm putting a team together, your answer is just yes. And he's one of them. And so Terry had joined Project One a few years before. He had gone in to set up kind of the London, the Southeast division, and he was chasing all the time. Come on, come on, you know, come and join, come and be part of this team. And I made him a promise as soon as Lloyd's HBOS had finished, give me a bit of time to sleep and I'll come across. And I did. But as much as I say, you'll always say, yes, you've got to understand what you're joining. And therefore, I kind of knew a little bit about Project One because we had used them when we worked together as, as customers. Therefore, I knew that it was a very senior team, no juniors. I knew that you had some very, very intelligent people who who were very practical and just wanted to get on and make change happen, which was great. So the ethos of what the company stood for was good for me. I also knew it was a boutique and an SME. And I kind of I'd worked out quite a few years beforehand that I didn't want to go into a big, a big consulting house. It's, it doesn't suit my personality type. I like to have a little bit more free reign and to actually be part of making making something better, making something good, creating something and and taking it in a different direction. I mean, that obviously, and we might touch on networking later, James, because I think there's there's probably a lot in there. But obviously, that sounded like a great opportunity for you. And, and you know, that fact you knew Terry and that personal connection was really big, I guess. Was there anything within that role that made you say, yeah, this is what I want to do? What was it? Was it simply the relationship or was there sort of other elements of that conversation that made you feel, yeah, th- this is going to give me the sort of long-term career goals I want as well? Probably a bit of the latter. So I, I don't think I would have come across if it was just to carry on kind of being a consultant. So, you know, Terry and I had talked openly about how his, what his aspiration was about growing what was that London and Southeast division at the time. And it was about, you know, not just not just necessarily doing what we'd always done, but looking to do it for bigger companies, bigger PLCs, bigger firms, and really start to grow. Because Project One had kind of been born out of the Northwest and had a very, very solid kind of footprint up in the North north and Northwest. And it was really about how do you bring that down to the, the shiny lights of London? It obviously been doing that for a couple of years, few years at the point where I joined. And it really was about, you know, how could I help? How could I bring you know, my style, my network, my connections into that and help with the growth. So I guess as as you were alluding to, it was more about the that opportunity to move into company leadership rather than program leadership, but in a way that you could combine the both. So to this day, I am still a customer-facing CEO. I was a customer-facing director of consulting services. I, I will always be customer facing. I cannot see a world where I'd be sitting in a in a in an office somewhere looking at everyone else doing it. I have to be out there. I have to be working in it. I have to be engaged with those customers. I'm an annoying, talkative person. I don't do documents. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. So it was it was really that opportunity to play a bigger role in in shaping how a company could grow. I and mean, that sounds really like a really interesting opportunity to to be a part of that. I guess there's also an element of you're joining a team, growing team. There's a you know incumbent leadership team either in the south southeast or in in the whole business. And actually. So what was that like in, in almost you're coming in with Terry to, to grow this team? But I suspect there were also 
people already at your level or above, but also people below who may have been like, that was going to be my position and bloody hell, who's this bloke who's just coming? I may, that may not have been the case, but yeah, what, what was that like? And uh, if it did create any tension, sort of how did you and Terry manage that? I don't know. I don't know if it's tension, but yes, all of what you've just said is true. There were incumbent people there. There were regional teams. There was a North team. There was a Scotland team at the time. Three managing directors, in effect, three teams, different sizes, different scales. But Project One always has and will continue to be fed from within. So we don't recruit externally into senior leadership, kind of into the roles. It's really people come up through the ranks, move into those positions. And and in effect, it's kind of self-selecting in that way, isn't it? Because the people who want to go down that particular track will drift to that particular track. The ones who don't will just stay with doing delivery, doing what they do best and what they love. It was the fact that the company is always has been and will continue to be independent. So again, you've got no paymaster sitting above in a group level trying to get you to sell other products and all that kind of stuff. You just stick to what you do best, deliver your core product of, of project and program management or change management. And so it didn't really feel like there was a tension. It was just about at that point in time, how do you grow this particular part of it? Further down the track, when Ian Helens, the original owner-founder, retired at the back end of 2016, you know, we took the decision to, in effect, fold the three network, the three regions into one and just become a national company. Because ultimately, if you're looking after Virgin Media in Hook in Hampshire and you're looking after Virgin Media in Withenshaw in Manchester, it's still the same company. You don't need people battling over you know, county lines. And so it was about how do you simplify an SME business? How do you actually look to make the most and maximize the opportunities out of an SME business, a boutique business? How do you look to go after the next big customer client opportunity? How do we look to grow the size and scale of the programs, the transformations that we're working on, the the duration of those? And all of that was just kind of fizzing around my head. And, you know, having run big programs in the past, you were really just doing the same thing, but just with a different agenda. I'd be interested in actually digging into that because one of the things I was was keen to ask you, and I, I think it's a great segue to do it, is and I'm going to probably offend a whole load of contractors here when I do this, is another element of the sort of con- long-term contractor archetype is they're very good program managers, but I've I've rarely seen many that have moved across to consulting successfully because of the the gamut of other skills and things you need to do. And and you you know, you just said it there, you you had it this fizzing, how can we grow the business? And and for you it was a program. But I guess I'd love to almost understand how you made that transition have you always naturally had that entrepreneurial side to your your mindset or was it you were applying has it been that just the same thinking in terms of projects and programs but applying it to a different focus what has enabled what i guess back then and still enabled you to make that shift into consulting that you know i've seen a lot of contractors struggle with at those senior levels i guess i went if you look at the different phases i did in-house roles for the first chunk then I went to consulting for a chunk with a big BPO and therefore you get a certain mindset driven into you about how you run the economics of a of a, a BPO or of a program or of an implementation. I then kind of went back, as you said, into that small contracting phase, but on supersized programs, which ironically, those programs and their budgets and the size of resourcing is probably bigger than most firms in the country. And then back into consulting. So it had kind of it's not like I'd come straight out of one and into the other for the first time. It was just kind of going round a, a repeating loop. I think on your point about you don't often see it, I think there are 
plenty of good examples of people who have made that transition, but it is a mindset thing. And depending on what mindset that individual has will determine how successful they, they can be in that way. It, to go a little bit further, my brain is wired in pictures and processes. And I don't know whether that's learnt, taught or genetic. I can't walk into a coffee shop without kind of going, all right, this process is broken. It doesn't work. Or, you know, an airport security system and kind of go, if you only did this, this or this, it would all flow much better. And therefore, it doesn't matter what the context is, whether you're talking about a project, a program, a transformation, a client, a customer, our own business. I'm always looking to make things better. I love that. And you mentioned, I'm, I'm going to ask you, because you, you mentioned there are plenty of examples with, and it's a mindset thing. What for those who you know, like yourself, who have, you know, have made that transition successfully, what, what is that mindset thing? What is, and I'm thinking this for anyone listening who's contracting at the moment thinking, I'd love to be back in consulting. I'd love to go into consulting. What, what is that mindset shift that is needed or that mindset that's needed to, to succeed in that transition? An inherent desire to want to, to build something, to grow something, to own something. And I don't mean own in terms of ownership, as in just owning the solution and actually trying to to get something. We all spend our lives doing that for customers, for clients, you know, turning, you know, functions, products, processes inside corporates into something better. This is just doing exactly the same. And whilst you're doing that in parallel, do it to yourself. You could badge it as entrepreneurial. You could badge it as all sorts of things, but I, I think it is just a, I've always wanted to do that. I never, I didn't ever grow up kind of thinking I want to own my own business. That never came into my mind. It really is just a case of follow the natural flow of the river, go where it wants to take you. Apart from sitting there saying, I want to write to the, the 100 <laughs> FTSE companies, I've always then kind of done however many years and gone, right, where next? Where next? Where next? I'm not, as I said, I didn't go into, into a big four and kind of go, right, I'm joining the grad scheme and I'm going to be here until I'm a senior partner. That never appealed at any point in my career. Yeah. And I, I think that point just around that constant learning, constantly pushing yourself. I think Given your story about your business with your friend at school, I think you're doing yourself a disservice to say you weren't always entrepreneurial or wanted to run your own businesses. But I, I, I think coming back to that, because it is the, the journey, like you say, in terms of how you you joined Project One and, and sort of the vision that yourself, Terry, and the team had for it. Where in that journey did the conversations around becoming the CEO come? Where is that something that it you know, was quite early as, a, as an idea or potential? Is that something that came quite late? So yeah, tell me. Just at that point, Terry was CEO. Where did the conversations about handing the baton on come into that? I think things just evolve through time, don't they? Because no matter who you are, if you come into a company, you've got to prove yourself. You've got to prove that you can do what that company wants you to do, what it needs you to do, that you can help it in some way or uh, shape or form. So in effect, the focus at that point originally was just like, how do you grow London, the Southeast? At the point where Terry became CEO at the back end of 2016, it was like, how do we you know, create one team, one, one set of clients for the country? It was then about, ironically, I think we were 16, 17 years old at that point in time. And I remember the conversation of, you know, this feels a little bit like you're doing your A-levels. And it was kind of like, right, you know that you're not you're going to keep doing the same kind of thing, but what do you want to be when you come out of university? So in five years' time, what do you want to be? Now, you could read that and kind of go, well, how do we grow up? If you want to, How do we professionalize? How do you take a phenomenal business that Ian and Phil had started 16, 17 years ago, who were the true entrepreneurs, who broke away from Barclays and Capgemini to create the firm, how do you then take it to the next level? How do you grow? Now, grow means so many different things, and there is no one statement that says what that is to anyone 
but it was about how do we how do we take it to the next level, the next generation. And I guess even when I sit here today, you know, Terry just retired this summer. You know, that's now my mindset as well. It's like, right, how do I go to the next generation? And I guess how do I prove to Terry that I've taken it further? And I don't need to, but that's just the way my brain is wired. Is what's next? What's better? What would better be? Is it revenue? Is it profit? Is it headcount? It doesn't matter what. Is it customers? Is it clients? Is it globalization? It doesn't matter. We've just got to sit there and go, what does that five-year agenda look like? And so was that trans so that transition to from Terry she said, was that that was built into that sort of five-year picture, was it? Or yeah, probably somewhere along the way. I don't know if there was a specific one day, one conversation. I think as with anything, it doesn't matter what you look at in life, you know, even football football clubs. What makes them appoint the next manager three days after they've got rid of the last one? Why do some of them choose to go external? Why do some go internal? Our view, as I said, is always to promote from within. You, you couldn't recruit into that role from an external. Well, you probably could, but we would. And therefore, you kind of look around, you don't you, all the time. So as you said, there was an incumbent leadership team, probably 14, 15 people even when I joined. And everyone makes their own choices. Some have gone on to set up their own firms. Others have gone on to back into industry to do other things. Some, some have retired. And there was just a kind of a natural, as I said, flow of the river where it kind of, I guess, flew, flowed my way. The transition itself, yeah, we've been planning that for at least the last three years because you can't just chuck someone the keys and say, you know, good luck, get on with it. You know, I'll see you later. We wanted to be very open. We wanted to communicate to everyone in the team. We wanted to reassure everyone where we're going. You know, we we have, you know, the bank and everyone else are involved. It's not a simple simple kind of day-to-day process. It was well mapped out and there was a perfect, you know, one ramp down and one ramp up and you overlap each other in the same way as you do if you're swapping a program director, you know, in a customer environment. Well, and you've, you've taken me to my next question because again, I think you're one of the first guests I've had on where there has been that transition. I've had a lot of guests from partnerships where a managing partner is elected or moves on, but the, the partnership structure is a different model. And you alluded to it there, and it, it, if this are things you can't talk about, just sort of stop me and, and we'll move on. But actually, I'd love to dig into the details of what that transition looked like. To your point, it's not a car. You can't just go, right, here's the keys, and, and now you drive it. Actually, how did you approach that? And what were, I guess, the big areas that you needed to manage the most carefully to ensure that transition worked effectively? And I'm asking this for anyone who you know, might be going through this yeah. themselves. Communication. That will always be number one. And I think open and honesty is closely linked and and the second. I've always been a firm believer that people can deal with any information you give them as long as you give them all the information. If you leave gray areas in in amongst the story, people will make up their own part of the story and it will go off in all sorts of directions. Sometimes not good. Therefore, if I looked at, let's say, the, the 12 months prior to Terry retiring, it was very coordinated. So we do monthly all hands videos. You know, Terry used to kind of lead a lot of them. We just kind of over time, you know, he did less, I did more. If we were doing Christmas events or summer events, again, whoever's kind of standing up and doing the keynote would would change through through time. And therefore, in a way, you're you're subliminally swapping the people without making a big noise about it. And then we got to four, five, six months out, and then kind of formally kind of sat there together on a on a video to the whole team and said, you know, here's the world's worst kept secret. You know, Terry is retiring and James is going to take over. But again, it's no news at that point in time because you are just getting on and doing it. I think it helps the fact that I am customer facing and I still own my own client accounts and I still to this day do. 
Therefore, it's very much seen as, you know, I know the business, I work in the business, I'm still selling for the business, I'm still delivering for the business. And that's, I really like, like you say, that well, both the story point, because you are quite right, the, the ability for Chinese whispers to manifest in, you know, is, it, and it's amazing sometimes where that goes. Um, and, and that obviously talks to the, the intern, I guess you mentioned, obviously, your client facing, I guess, how did you approach the client side? Because again, in, in some ways, you know, I'm, and I'm guessing here, but some clients might be concerned, okay, Terry's leaving, what does that mean? Some clients might think, well, James was my client lead, now he's the CEO, will I ever see him? Some clients might have thought, I didn't want to see James, but now he's the CEO, I really want to see him. You know, how did you manage that side of things, again, to, to make sure the clients were sort of as calm as the team? Uh, in exactly the same way. So full communication, every customer within those client organizations that we worked with or had worked with in the near past were all personally emailed for those on the active accounts we individually managed the conversations from the account directors into those customers a lot of those customers know who i am anyway because i've in that previous role i kind of was around a bit <laughs> people saw me people knew who i was and as you said you get all sorts you get the ones that never wanted to see you before and so it's like oh i'd like to meet and and you go oh, okay i've only changed the job title but no the, the key thing for me and for us was you know, continuity. Just keep doing what you're doing because we do it well. You steady the ship. You don't make any drama over it. It is a no news story. We're doing what we've done in effect for the whole 25 years, which is hand the company down, if you want to call it that. And it is internal. So again, there's not a new person turning up who's untried, untested. No one knows. It's all very much a, yeah, it's just James. Was there anything that either didn't work as well as you'd hoped in in that transition or Maybe a better question is, you know, looking back, is there anything you would have done differently, you know, with that benefit of hindsight? Ironically, no, because I think we we are both scenario people. So I run everything through hundreds of scenarios in my head. If I'm on a train and you think I'm staring, I'm not. I'm just <laughs> I'm just thinking of a thousand scenarios. And therefore we'd kind of run it to death over a, a pretty decent period of time. I think if you stick to those basics of get the communication right, be as open and honest as you can, then you don't end up with those awkward Q&A sheets that, you know, we all love to hate. And again, you know, pick your time as to when is the right time, how early to kind of formalize it versus what you want to do in the background, because there is plenty you can do in the background long before you get to any announcement. I love the point about scenarios. It's, um, I listened to a podcast where they talk about the, the military in the, U in the US, do, they call it red teaming, where they all get in a room and basically lob you know, worst case scenarios at each other. And I, it sounds like in, in your case, that, that's the thing that let you say, well, you've got these thousand different worst cases. And actually, if you deal with them up front, you, you're probably going to be okay in the, in the actual sort of execution, as it were. Absolutely. Plan for the worst, you know, ready for the best. And I'm assuming because you, you you, you talked about treating it like a project. I'm assuming there was a plan. There was a... Was it, there was a very, very detailed plan. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, both of us, again, Terry and I, are both fastidious about program governance and the reason it should exist. And I know people are binary as to whether they do or don't like it. I guess from the size and scale of the programs we've been involved in, it's a must-have. And therefore, if you just apply the same discipline to this activity, it, it serves the same purpose, which is it just keeps you true, keeps you honest. You, everyone knows where you are. You know what needs to be done. You know what you're running late on. You know what you need to do next. And it just flows and it, and it makes life really simple. There's always something goes wrong. It's like a project, isn't it? Things go wrong. 
just you know deal with it. The scenario thing is because you are always in a program or project world, sat there trying to understand what's going to happen today, tomorrow, next week, next month. How are you going to mitigate stuff? How are you going to recover stuff? You just over 25, 30 years, you just train your brain to just scenario, 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 scenario. As I, I'll ask this just in case, and to be honest, we might cut it out if it goes nowhere, but the transition all went well. Obviously, there's an interesting period post-transition where Terry is no longer there. So you kind of, some of those scenarios are expect had, you know, he'll step in or you'll step in. Actually, that sort of, I think you said he left six months ago. Is that right? Left in the summer, so yeah, so end he, of June. Yeah, so few, few less, I guess. Has there been anything in those last few months where you thought, we didn't plan for this, or we didn't think about this, maybe other than a global recession? But <laughs> <laughs> Timing um, is ever. Uh, uh, no. It's weird, though, isn't it? If you think about it from the timing point of view, if you go back and look at the five-year window or the three-year window, go to the three-year, and that's the start of Brexit, and then hot-footing it straight into COVID. And then, obviously, we kind of pin the end of COVID as kind of Q1 this year. Terry left at the end of Q2, as you said, just ahead of whatever is about to happen. But at the same time, we planned and kind of mastered our way through all of those events in exactly the same way. A lot of communication, a lot of planning, a lot of scenarios. Um, would I do anything? Has anything happened? No. I think we are in that weird zone that you talked about, the post, the post exit. It's very strange because, as you said, part of you kind of thinks, oh, he's just got on holiday. Part of you kind of goes, oh, he's not coming back. Part of you is there kind of going, oh, I've lost my best friend. I've lost my, my, my kind of sounding board. And at the same time, you also know that people don't always then talk to you in the same way as they would have done beforehand because they're second-guessing as to what they say and what, what it might mean. So there's a whole raft of emotions going on. I think by the time you get, let's say, to year end, I think that's kind of a nice marking point. So when you come back at the beginning of January, that's the, the true start of the the new world. This is transition, you know, Q3, Q4. Uh, and then it's kind of, you know, it's new world order from from January. But in reality, on the day-to-day and the, the ground, nothing's different. We just carry on. We, it's a, it's funny, isn't it? Because again, if you go back to the fact we're a, we're an SME, we're a boutique. There's 100, 120 people. The consultants are all of a senior level. Therefore, you're dealing with a very different cohort. You know, I'm to deal with a full pyramid and, and a bunch of fears, concerns, emotions that may exist elsewhere. They're just not there. In, in effect, I'd say some of the people were just like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> you know, it's just, just leave me. Let me get on with my job. It, because we've we've built a firm for grown-ups. You know, there's no balanced scorecards. There's no quarterly reviews. It is very much, we all know what we need to do. We've all got our part to play. Let's just go and play it. I'm going to ask about that because it's a model I've not actually heard many use. And I guess, to your point, on the one hand, it enable, it gives freedom for people to be grown-ups. You know, you do your job well, you will progress, you will be rewarded. We're actually at the moment thinking about our approach to this. So I'm being very selfish here, James. How do you make that work? I guess in terms of when someone is great, it's obvious and there is no need for a balanced scorecard or a performance yeah. review where someone may not be performing to the level you expect or the level you want, or as is quite common in consulting because people are ambitious, the person thinks they're performing better than you think they're performing. So there's a conversation about progression and pay rises. How do you manage that? How do you approach those conversations as a firm? Very easily, but I'm, I'm not going to pretend I was the arch- architect of it all because this obviously is steeped in 24, 25 years of history. Again, going back to Ian and Phil and how they set the business up, which was in effect a, an element of genius because 
the consultants are rewarded for delivery. And if you if you take that in its purest form, where their work, their behavior, their level level and skill is rewarded, and you keep that nicely cocooned, you can actually have a really straight relationship. So as you said, things go wrong, right? In in programs, in customers, in personalities. But if you've actually set the expectations right from the get-go, so from recruitment around how we operate, how we work, what that behavior set is, how we expect every kind of cohort to play together in the playground, it becomes really simple because if something goes wrong, you just have a nice conversation. It's gone wrong. Let's understand why. If things go wrong repeatedly, then you're having a different conversation, but it's a, it's a conversation for grown-ups. It's that walk around the block kind of, come on, let's have a chat. What's going on? Why is this happening? And and you're not needing a scorecard. You're not needing a bunch of HR kind of policies, procedures. You're just talking to someone who is the same level experience of yourself, similar age, you know, and, and just having a chat, which is good because it, it takes the barriers down, doesn't it? But you have to set it up from the start. But again, you go back to the model is really only bringing in the, the very experienced people. They may have been the North Star in another firm and they come here and they go, oh, hang on a minute, there's 100 North Stars, which is which is interesting in itself because they then collaborate, communicate in a very, very different way to the way they would have done in some of the, some of the big firms they came from. But we've created a home for people who, in effect, have come to – this sounds terrible, don't it? They've come to the end of the, their journey in, that, in those big houses. They don't want to become senior partners or partners over there. They want to do what they do best, which is deliver big – messy, ugly programs with big companies. And we've created that as a client base, customer base, and a consulting cohort that all come together just to do to do just that, small teams. You know, we're putting in two, three, four, five people into a, a project or a program. You may have anything from one to ten, you know, in a in a client. But again, they've all got fully em, fully empowered roles to deliver at a high level into generally into an exec board of of a of a big PLC or a big global. So it all comes together, but you've got to set it out from the day they walk in for that interview. You've got to tell them how it is because that's not how everybody likes it. Some like balanced scorecards, believe it or not. Well, and, and I think your point there around that, just honest, it all starts with that honesty and, and openness. You know, like you say, if you're clear about their expectations, and I guess also clear who that works for and who it doesn't, you should filter out those it doesn't before they get through the door and you end up with those it does. And you know, I do in a minute want to want to turn to your point around this sort of the difference between big and small and also who they suit. Cause I think implicit in there and, and you said it about yourself, you know, some people suit big firms, some people suit small. And actually it's it's not around good or bad or right or wrong. It's different people and and I think also different stages in career. You know, you mentioned a lot of your people may have had a good career in a big firm. And like you say, then the choices for progression are are often management, partnership, leadership, which is not necessarily what everyone wants to do. I think there's, like most things in life, there's a bit of a misnomer that everyone wants to become a partner. And there's a lot of people who like being fantastic program managers because there's a lot of big programs out there. And I guess, how do you see that sort of as a, you know, you, you run an SME, a boutique firm, kind of what drew you to that end of the market? And, and what is it, that when you're sort of speaking to candidates, team members, customers, for you is that differentiator? What should someone think about? Why join a boutique over a big firm, let's say? So might jump around a little bit here, but if you go back to when Project One started in 1998, there was probably very few boutiques. It was all the big firms, whether it was 
big consulting, big tech. It was all the big guys that pretty much had most of the market. Wind forward to where we are today. I today, what there are two, three hundred, maybe more boutiques in the consulting business in the UK. A good number of senior partners will have left the big houses and created their own. And it's therefore far more acceptable to kind of have a boutique market. Now, again, even in the boutique world, it then splits, doesn't it? You've got the true SMEs, and I don't mean SME by size, but your skill set SMEs who want to be a specific thing. They could be there to do, you know, SAP or ERP, and that's all they're about. But I think what what that has opened up in having all these boutiques is a completely different channel, different market for people to move into. And as you said, it, it'll be different reasons for different people. Not everyone does suit the big firms. They are so big that you can get you can get lost uh, in them. Um, the politics is very different. The empowerment is very very different. The economics and 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 the way that's managed and the way the clients are managed totally different. You come to that boutique end, and it's very much you feel like you are part of the company. It is more family than it is corporate. You know everyone. You know I I, I have a personal view in my head that you know one hundred and twenty to one hundred and fifty. You will know everyone that's there one way, shape or form. You know who to call. You know how to get an answer to something. And I think people choose to go that way. And there's a question I ask in, in interviews, which is, are you ready to give up the brand name? You know, if you walk into a pub and someone says, who do you work for? And you say, I work for one of the, you know, these big four. Everyone goes, oh, yeah, great, great, great. But if you walk in and say, I work for Project One, are you going to worry when they go, who are Project One? You know, they need to have kind of got to that stage where they're willing to make that transition. You'd be surprised how many don't, and they don't realize it until they're in that that interview having that question. It's funny because people think that the remuneration will be vastly different. It's not. It's, it's you know, it will probably pay better than some of the big houses because of the way that it's structured. Um, it gives you options. So again, you don't have to be on a partner track. You can just do delivery. We want everyone to play their part though. So business development, yeah, you don't have a target. That doesn't mean you don't have to do it. You know, you still have to be there, you know, working with your client, your customer, looking for opportunities, you know, that that are there for us to help that customer even further. It's that symbiotic relationship that kind of enables us to keep going and keep growing. It's about building networks, connections, conversations. So again, you go back to that grown-up thing, generically, grown-ups are very good at having conversations. Which we we all weren't when we were in our 20s, let's be honest, right? We were as scared of talking to C-suite back then as anyone is now. You learn that trade, don't you? That skill as you go through life. And so, again, you're asking your senior team to go and talk to their senior customers about how can Project One help. But on our size and scale, not pulling a bus up with 50 people getting out. No, I think some really good points there, James, right? Just because it piqued my interest, and I, I love practical advice on this show. You, your interview question, I thought, was a really good one because I. And it's funny you say it because I remember when I worked in consulting, there was a friend of a friend who was looking to leave one of the big houses, and that actually was exactly the problem. You know, he'd, he'd be he loved everything else when I was telling him about the film I worked for. He loved everything else, but the fact that the name was not as big as the name he had been at actually almost even to the detriment of his career you know the speed he was looking to he wasn't being progressed fast enough but because he had that badge that was the blocker there may not be many other specifics like that but are there any other questions you or your team use to kind of weed out whether someone is right for either project one or a boutique firm in general our particular one i can't i can't comment for others is um are they comfortable giving bad news so we've always had a firm belief that 
you know, things go wrong in projects and programs. That's just fact. The quicker you declare that, the quicker you talk about it, the quicker you can look at ways to mitigate it or, or recover it, the better for everyone. So it goes straight back to that open and honest communication. That's not the case across the whole industry. And I think, hence, you've got to get into that in those interview conversations, which is just, you know, you need to be able to go and tell the customer that the dog is unwell. You know, what do you want to do kind of thing? And and again, because if you then link it back to that, we're independent. I'm not trying to sell any other product, hardware, software, licenses, tools, anything. It makes it a really clear-cut conversation. There's no hidden agenda. We're just here to run your program for you and to get the best outcome. Therefore, we'll tell you when there's problems and we'll work with you to collectively come up with the answer. But again, that's not everyone's cup of tea. But again, you come back to why do people leave the big firms at that point in their career to come to an SME? Because you have the ability to deliver those big programs in a, in a more empowered way than you probably ever have done before. But it also allows you, if you want to go into more of the account management business development side, you can do. If you want to get to the leadership team, you can do. It's not a big mountain that you you know everyone. There's no need to even say there's an open door policy because there's no doors. It's just go and have a chat. You know, everyone's phone number's on the phone. Just dial it. Have a conversation. Work out, you know, how we could work together to take you wherever you want to go. Conversely, though, we've got a flat organization. There is a, a support team in our head office in Holmes Chapel in Cheshire who look after, you know, everything to do with finance, HR, people, marketing, IT. Then you have a cohort of consultants. They all only have one job title, consultant. There is a leadership team, which is, you know, the account directors. And then there is a, an SLT. And that's it. And it makes it really simple. So, again, you go back to another well, sub-question off that interview. Are you happy with the fact you're going to be called a consultant? Now, their mind immediately jumps back to when they were 22 and they were called a consultant. They go, well, hang on a minute, I've gone from consultant, I've gone senior, I've gone senior manager, I've gone principal. And it's like, yeah, forget all of that because you're not 22 anymore. You're a consultant. And no one really cares in a sense. Your clients are not buying you because of your grade. So there's no grades. There's no job titles. It really just undoes everything. There's no one clamoring over the top of anyone to try and get to another level, another pay rise or anything else. It's just really simplified. You've actually just answered something else I had on my list, which was it was exactly that, James. And I this is probably going to be something, you know, almost finger in the air, but my guess would be that is more of a shock to people than the badge. And I'd be interested. So when you have these interviews, do you, you know, on average, do they get more surprised at the big four to small question, or do they get more surprised by that one? Because I, I do think in our industry, a bit like the car you drive or used to drive, like uh, a lot is wrapped up in grades because you can, you know, it's, it's a subtle pseudo, you know, it's a subtle proxy for salary and experience. And so yeah. how do you find people like, is that a shock for people? Is it, is that a good test of whether they're a project one person or not? How, how does that land? I think when you, when you piece all of the puzzle together, they get it. The, the two that we previously discussed are the ones that really make the difference as to whether they will decide to make that jump or not. But in general, when you describe the whole ecosystem and how it all hangs together, they really get it and they really get it fast. Yes, there is the same transition that we talked about earlier on. They'll come in and the first three, six, nine, 12 months will be like, is this real? Is it real? And it's like, oh, hang on a minute. Oh, yep, no, it is. And then as soon as you go past that, it's just like, crack on. 
But I totally get why people are skeptical, right? And I totally get why people go, what do you mean I'm just a consultant? You can see it on their LinkedIn. They'll join and they'll still put director, you know? <laughs> and then after a while- I've seen a few, um, not necessarily your firm, but mm. I've seen others where it's brackets as well. It's like oh, consult it's, it's, bracket, senior I've manager level. seen all. So in, <laughs> it's funny, as you said, you'll see it in that first year where they'll have a different title. And then after that, you'll just see it just disappear because they've realized that it's not a status symbol anymore. There's no need for it to be. And it, and it is, it, it's in effect undoing what they've been subliminally taught. I think it's a really interesting point. Like you say, it. I think there's a, a across all walks of life, things that just get assumed and therefore done. So everyone, you know, everyone assumes you should have grade structures in consulting and actually, you know, your point of let's change, well, you know, your predecessors, they didn't do that. And it has led to a you know successful model for yourselves. And I think, you know, particularly for anyone listening in those boutiques, also an interesting lesson in there as well, because it does, like you say, I imagine it saves a lot of the politics around, well, am I a senior manager, a manager, a, you know, this, there seems to be subgrades within grades now, sort of junior, senior manager. And But you can take it further forward though. And you do it, as you said, if you flatten as much as you possibly can, it's better for everyone. Then you don't have the thing about, I want to work on a certain account because that's perceived to be better than that account. Again, you can you can do away with all of that. It doesn't matter whether this program is being led by Janet, supported by John, and then the next one's led by John, supported by Janet. Because again, there's no grades. It's just, we're here to do a job. Who's the best placed person? And we've, we have stuff even on teams where amongst themselves they'll go, we came in with a view that I'll run it and you'll support it. But three months in, we're like, oh, this doesn't make sense. It actually would be better the other way. And we'll just we'll just flip it. And no one will mind. It's just a common sense. To your, I think you used the phrase, just get it done. The job is to get the stuff done. It's not about creating PowerPoint decks. It's not about trying to sell multi-million pound sell-ons. It's just about getting that program done for that customer. And if our job is to kind of put in a very small team to sit across the top of all the other teams, then we know what the agenda is. It will run for one, two, three, four years, we will be wired into that business. Half the time, they probably don't know it's project one in a good way because it's just, you know, you're part of the the fabric. I'm going to have to ask it so that people don't just think I'm, I'm blowing smoke um, for you and project one, but are there any complications that it has caused at that flat model? And, and, and if so, what are they and how have you navigated them? It doesn't cause problems, no. But again, you've got to be open on us from the start because there, is, there isn't a career ladder because there, you've just taken it all away. So in effect, you, you've, you've got consultant doing delivery. You've got account directors managing accounts. If people want to move between those two worlds in either direction, by the way, we've had both, it is fully available in effect to everyone, anyone. But as you said, in that interview process or in those early days, it's like, where is the career steps? Where are we going? But again, once people kind of see it and understand it and have worked in it, it becomes pretty self-evident. Great to hear. I won't I won't dig any further on that then, James. I I actually you touched on how you know the boutique market has changed and, and you're right, you know, when when Project One was founded, I mean I I was I wasn't working quite by that point, but there was a lot less consulting firms and now there are a lot of boutiques. I, I You've been in the industry for for a long time, and I guess I'd I'd love to get your thoughts on on you know how, how else do you see it's changed? You, know, you mentioned the, the number of firms, but actually consulting as a career as a you know profession. What have been those big shifts over that time? I'd, I'd, I'd go at it the other way. I think fundamentally now it's more about project and program delivery, and I'm not too sure 
whether that was always the way. I think, as opposed to sort of advisory, if I, if I use that word, there's less advisory and more implementation these days. But on a scale, isn't there? I mean, the number of people in the industry is just vast compared to, to 25, 30 years ago. I think there's very clear demarcation lines between the strategy houses, the BPO houses, the tech houses, and 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 the delivery implementation kind of side. Every now and again, we all try and blur them, and then every now and again, they just reset themselves. I think the market is the contract market is is vastly bigger than it ever was because a lot of in-house teams were were let go, and therefore your customers have got wider choice. I think in Days gone by, you think you probably saw a lot of pyramid teams, and now it's a multi-universe. In effect, you, you've got multi-vendor landscapes in the big programs, big in the big corporations, and that's good. We should all work together because we are all we're not. Yes, we are competing against each other, but in some ways, we're not. You know, there's no there's no direct competitor to to some of the big houses, and there's no direct competitor to a, to a project one. We've probably got the biggest cohort of out and out program directors and program managers that are available to those customers five days a week because in the in a big house you wouldn't you'd be doing sales leadership and other things for a percentage of it so it enables clients customers to to put together an ecosystem where they can have the best of the best and build a multifaceted solution which is good i think it's good for the industry i think that will continue to evolve which can only be a positive thing for everyone i think a lot of the customers are, are, are far more Educated, they've worked with all these firms for so many years that they also know how to put those those teams together. It is an interesting point, like you say, that sort of proliferation and, and therefore combination. And we didn't talk about it at lunch, but funnily enough, I I don't know if we would have crossed. And I was probably much further down the project than um, you were at the time. So we, I don't think we ever met. But I I did also work on the uh, the project you worked on at Lloyd's. I think I was only there for a couple of months. Um, it was a office above a branch on Moorgate and I that was me yes was that, were you in there I was I we yes I took that whole thing it hadn't been used since the 1970s and we reopened the uh, the floors above the branch well, af- after this we're going to have to compare names to see if we <laughs> did ever meet because I, I was only on it for a very short stint but I do I, I distinctly remember the office end-to-end um, simplification that was that was the one. So, um, yeah, I, we'll we'll talk more about that after this. Um, but every time now, I rem- every time I go into to the city to see friends, clients, etc., I always look up. I, it always takes me past that, and I always remember that office. So that's just a. I remember I, putting plasterboard into that thing and throwing Wi-Fi routers in a corner. That's how. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't remember it being the the highest spec office I've ever worked in. <laughs> I think I went straight from there to banking organization where they gave you free bottled water and it was quite a stark shift it was a, a different world but yes it is a small world like you say that proliferation though i think and also that abundant you know there's, a, there's an implicit element in what you just said around that almost abundance mindset for want of a better name of there are so many projects programs organizations that i think and i i'm guessing because i wasn't around but i think there used to be a sort of you know it's a if I don't get it, someone else will, or if they get it, you know, it's a win. It's always a zero sum game. Whereas I think there's now so many projects going on, so many organizations who need help and actually everyone can have a bit of that pie, like you say, and what you do is different to someone else such that your team are great at, you know, project and programs. Someone else is great at the other bit they do. Yeah, No, I couldn't agree more. I think as you, if you go back and join some of those dots, let's take banking because it's an easy one to, to use as, as the case study. The vast in-house change and transformation teams are not the size and scale they used to be. In effect, they've they've let them go. 
they've let them go because they know they can go to the suppliers and buy in and capex the 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 cost and therefore as you said you can put together go and get me the best pmo function go and get me the best data analytics function go and get me the best project and program leadership function go and get me the volume you know and you can cherry pick where you put that ecosystem together from. You can then do that by industry, knowing that there are some that specialize in telco and some that specialize in pharma. And again, you can you can put your solution together. I think there is then a generic overview of it all though, which says, if you are good at project and program management, you're good at project and program management. It's a discipline in itself. The context, the industry, the sector is slightly agnostic. You just need to know how to run a program in a, in a good way. No, and and like you say, that that approach can then be used for everything from end to end simplification to changing CEOs, as we've we've touched on. And I'm intrigued by your answer to this, just because you know I, I, we're going to come on to your LinkedIn videos, and I, I like them because they're kind of direct to the point. And you know, you you say what what you feel is true, and you say what you believe, and and I always think that's a nice characteristic. And I, I guess to our conversation around sort of what is going on in the you know what's changed in the industry. I mean, is there anything? in terms of beliefs or approaches that actually you disagree with in how most consulting firms run or how the industry runs? Or is there anything that you think our industry does need to change to react to kind of the, the world we live in today? Um, the, the biggest one for me is that collaboration one. I think there is still this crazy world where we are working with each other day in, day out in all these client organizations, but yet we don't actually try and work together. And I've never really understood it in some way, you know, most other industries would, if we just use the, the, the term subcontract in some way, shape or form, they would partner with each other to try and get the best solution for everyone. That really doesn't go on. There's still an element of, you know, I can do all this myself. My team's better than your team. And I just kind of go, oh, I wish we'd get over ourselves. I, I think the, the SME world will get there a lot faster than the big houses. And I mean that from consulting and tech. Because I think the SME world is very fast working out that if you could create a little ecosystem where, you know, we could sit there and go, you know, we use that firm for testing, we use that team firm for PMO, we use that firm for data analytics, then we all get, you know, to go to the party together. And in effect, we'll end up looking after ourselves in the SME market, which will then become more powerful, ironically, than, you know, in some respects than the big firms. Now, they may not see it that way. They might go, yeah, it's still an annoyance. But... It doesn't need to be that way. We could do that across the whole industry and actually look to to share it. We all move around as well, don't we? Let's be honest. You know know people that have worked at multiple firms and multiple clients. It's a pretty small world. Uh, I think it is a good point. And and there's an element within that as well, I guess, to what you said around why people join Project One, they want to do project delivery, is actually by doing that, you also enable people to do the work they want to do. Because PMO, just because you mentioned it, is sort of, that has, you know, in in certain firms, always been a kind of proving ground for twenty, you know, twenty one to twenty five year old analysts. And actually, some people love that. And if well, you're that's really a particular PMO, well, I'm, I'm. It's been a long time since I've been a PMO, no, so the, I won't. But I'm not going to. No, but that that is part of, as you said, how has the world evolved, right? The, if I, I hope this term isn't too bad, but the crank the handle element that you're talking about there, I get, I understand, but there is a completely different top end to that now that I don't think existed in the past, but definitely is needed today which is is that whole PMO leadership. It's a, it's a you know a value-based PMO. It's not a post box. It is your the heart of your governance and control. It should independently be running that program. It should be holding everybody to account. You still are faced 
probably more often than we, than than the industry should be and the client industry should be, where you're trying to justify why you need that function rather than just saying this thing pays for itself in spades. So you know that level of PMO, I, I think people could do a lot more with. I think you know a lot more about PMO than I do, Jen. So I'm not even going to attempt to to challenge or discuss on on the variants. But I I do think your point kind of reinforces what you're saying as well around the specialism because you cannot have that world really unless there are f- firms that specialize in it. And so how do you hone, you know, if if you're in a firm where PMO isn't valued, you're never going to want to be a PMO for a long time. Actually, if there's a world, you know, some people, like you say, they love it, they see the value of it. There is now a world where you can easily set up your own specialist PMO there organization. Are who, and who make, you know, eight-figure numbers of revenue just out of PMO. And it is most definitely needed. And, and I think, like you say, that's that's what I think, as you touched on, is fascinating seeing the specialism and then how to combine those. And it's interesting. Clients are the buyers and lead the decisions of the consulting firm. So if buyers are understanding this, the, the industry follows suit. Yeah, playing nice together. It's, it's always been a challenge in the consulting industry. It's why I do this podcast. The, the lack of... I always think our industry is great at sharing inside, but doesn't share enough outside for, well, like you say, what is yeah, enough to go around, hopefully. There's more than, I mean, not I don't know how many businesses, companies, organizations, clients there are in this country, but my God, there's far more than we all need. And, you know, the world has moved on. So customers also move far more regularly these days and they don't just move internally. They'll be moving externally. They're not just moving within the same industry or sector. They're moving across and they will always therefore have their relationships. So if you come back to that, you know, this is a relationship-based industry. It's the relationships that if you invest the time into them will actually serve you the best. It's not the product. It's not a, a toolkit. It's that. It's about knowing those people so that when they move, they want to take you with with them. And therefore, it's not always a lockout as it used to be where, you know, here's the PSL, here's the ones that have got the MSAs, here's that firm in here and that firm over there. It doesn't play out that way anymore it's very much a i knew who i like it's no different to you know new football manager goes in what's the first thing they say i'm bringing my team it's my coach my physio my trainer you bring your team with you i'd find it strange nowadays if, if a senior exec turned up in an organization and didn't have a a team they want to bring i'd find that very strange i feel it's a natural place to bring it in because you mentioned it earlier and i i did say i would try and find us a place to talk about networking I do. So I, I share all of the yeah all of the things you just said, and I agree with it. I guess thinking of how to help our audience has, has networking always been something you've been good at. Before? No, no, brilliant. <laughs> Not that even was, close. That was that was the answer I was hoping for. You mentioned earlier in your twenties you couldn't talk to people, right. and then so what changed? Was it was it a course? Was it a, an epiphany? What what was it that helped you go from someone who couldn't network to someone who who can? Uh, awkward life learning. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess I'm a I'm an introverted extrovert if there is such a thing i have my shy side i have my you know drop me into a room of 100 people and i'm the guy standing in the corner not wanting to talk to anyone because you have your fears and then there comes a point in time in your career where you kind of had no choice and you kind of got to embrace it and go for it and i think everybody realizes that everybody else is generally as awkward as you are so i think you have just got to throw yourself into it i've got to you've got to find your own level your own style your own approach but it is massively important I, I guess if i look back over my career i probably should have worked that out earlier does anybody tell you it no not necessarily but then i don't know 
if in the big firms you just get sheep dipped into a course somewhere. I don't know. I didn't. <laughs> but it is invaluable because it's those relationships that really help you get on in your career, help you f- build customer relationships. And that is really at the heart of everything we do. It also helps you when things go wrong because, you, you, again, if you've got that open and trusted relationship, you can just you know, say, there's something that's wrong. We've got to sort it out. And you just end up having that conversation rather than the horrible one. You know that's too late down the road where you're you're doing it too formally. So no, I would I would implore anybody, kind of coming up through this career, to just get into that sooner rather than later. Find their own way of doing it. They find their own style. Get to talk to them. Become inquisitive. There's a word that probably don't hear enough. Be inquisitive. There's no such thing as a stupid question because the chances are that whoever you're asking asked it at some point in time. We don't we're not born with all this knowledge, and therefore you just got to prod and poke and find your feet do a lot of it informally though don't i'm not talking about like networking events where you're going around with a badge on your lapel i prefer the you know on a floor just getting to know people around the business even if you're not working directly with them just get to know people practice your skill out there you know by the water cooler by the coffee machine you know in the queues you know just around the floor talking to people that are sitting around you in this day and age when no one has a desk you know everyone's moving all the time that's actually a little bit easier because people are sitting kind of going, I don't really know anyone around me. So if you just get chatting, you'll find everyone wants to chat with you, which is probably some people's nightmare having me near them chatting. <laughs> well, no, I think it's a great point. And, and it reminds me actually, one of my former guests sort of made, made this point of, you know, it's, it's the peers you're in the room with today who are the CEOs of tomorrow. Oh, absolutely. And, and actually, like you say, if you, you know, people do move around within a small ecosystem, you know, you, we mentioned banking where we, you know, we were on that program. People tend to stay in banking and they may go for, you know, from retail bank to retail bank. But that's they'll... one particular industry though, where they do There's Most of the others aren't as, really aren't as um, colloquial. Ah, well, I guess the, the point's still around you know, those people you know, who you sat next to or tra- chatted to at the water cooler at one, one for may in 10 years time, be the no, CEO totally. of another. And, and I also share your, I've been to enough shaky hand networking events. I think your point is quite good. It's, it's ironic, actually, you mentioned, you know, obviously you, you hadn't been on, on sort of a formal grad scheme. And I, I did do a formal grad scheme, as I was saying at lunch. I'm always your YouTuber who wraps the cars. I'm in awe because anyone who has an atypical career, I always think that sounds much more interesting than what I did. But I actually think a lot of these graduate schemes are part of the problem with why or what the cause of why people don't network because you you do get put on a course and you get taught that networking isn't a chat it's you know I've got to make sure I'm, my body language is the same and I you know it's it, I've got to do this intimate this sort of you know um, complex dance of questions that's and- my worst nightmare <laughs> what you just described <laughs> they, they exist and people you know people make a lot of money training on them but I, I think your point around just be yourself be yourself and also just Many listeners to this, I say many listeners, you know, I'm making myself sound much more um, famous than I am. I have no fame, but yeah, I used so I stopped drinking about five years ago. And actually, it was exactly the same thing of, you know, you go to a wedding and you know, my problem used to be free booze, the food will catch up. And sometimes it didn't always catch up, but you know, you, you, you'd have a few drinks to get yourself calm because you sort of panic that everyone else is calm and you're the, you're the anomaly. And, and a bit like you were saying with networking, you very quickly realize everyone's uncomfortable just talking to strangers and the only way almost no one is born innately comfortable with it you just get comfortable doing it and it's it's just doing it there are some that are naturally more comfortable at it and naturally better at it sometimes though when you actually talk to them they've still got fear they've just 
learnt a way of putting a barrier over it. I think, as you just described, sometimes you've got to get away from the work chat because if you actually just start talking to the individual about the individual, life just you know unravels. If you meet people near where you live, you don't start talking about work, do you? You talk about them and their life and what they're doing and the kids and the holidays and you know life events. Do the same at work. It, it, you don't need to walk in and go, hang on a minute, let me talk to you about this presentation deck I happen to have sneakily hidden behind my back. Get to know them as an individual. If you know they'll buy into you, then the rest actually just naturally follows. And like I said, there are people that were senior or, or lieutenants in, in that Lloyd's world that then went on, that we've worked with at HSBC, that we've worked with at Metro. That we, you know, the list is, is long. And it's those relationships that you've built up through those events that actually create, in effect, your pipeline, if you want to call it that, you know, years later. And that's that program's, God, 11 years ago, something like that now. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a really key point. It reminds me, and I'll have to credit the person when I can remember who it is, but I, I listened to a podcast where the guest said they, they've deliberately stopped asking, you know, the, the old, what do you do question and, and replaced it with a, you know, a, a slight change of what do you do at the weekends? You know, what is your hobby? And, and I think to your point, it, it gets people on something that isn't work. And, you know, for some people, they love work and that's a really passionate thing for them. But for others, it's not. Well, you and- blend the two, don't you? But you've got to find a start point. And the start point, in my experience, and the way I do it is not generally about, you know, talk me through how your product launches. Tell out. me your project plan. Give me, <laughs> exactly. Show me your Gantt chart. It's, I'm sure it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? I don't want to walk around an office shouting. Maybe I don't want to walk around an office shouting, show me your Gantt chart, but <laughs> it'd get you a reputation at least. Um, so something else, and I know you're passionate about it. I know it's a big focus for Project One. And it's a big focus for a lot of people in the industry at the moment is, is climate. And I'd just love to get your take on it and how you are approaching that climate agenda from a Project One perspective. I'd like to say in our own way and slightly differently to others, because this goes back to something we touched on earlier. We are very clear about what we are here to do, what we're good at doing, and what we're not here to do and not good at doing. And fundamentally, we are very, very good at running projects, programs, and transformations. The whole climate agenda, if you look at it from a program and um, program and transformation point of view, is nothing more than that. There are a set of programs that need to run. There are a set of tasks that need to happen. There is an outcome that needs to 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 be realized. And therefore, you will have heard me kind of make that quote of, why would anybody be doing change and transformation nowadays that doesn't have some form of contribution to that agenda? So that's not going anywhere near the geopolitical side of it. That's just, you know, doing what we do day in, day out. And therefore, we've taken that approach into how we as Project One are are, um, are kind of positioning ourselves, which is I'm not sitting there kind of with all of the, the data and the graphs and the, you know, the what's going to happen to the world side. It's very much a, here's the top 10 things that we think any corporate should be looking at. These, therefore, are projects and programs. They need to sit inside your portfolio. They take X length of time to deliver and realize the benefit therefore here's where they kind of fit if you want to say that you're going to hit something by 20 30 35 40 50 it's a lot longer obviously than people think but we are in a world where we're going on the journey and as with any of these kind of adoption kind of journeys you will have your fast adopters you'll have your your people that want to see how it's going before they get on board there'll be different people able to put in different amounts of investment at this stage but ultimately we've all got to contribute to that kind of ultimate outcome. So we're very much sticking to the practical side. 
let us show you where this sits in your world. There are plenty of other firms out there who are climate specialists, ESG specialists, carbon specialists. You know, we can help you do the basics and we can help you wrap all of that in. We can even help you find other firms to help you on all of those parts of it. But there is a very obvious list of topics, shall we say, within the agenda that just need to be done and we just need to get on and do them. And now you you might tell me this is the the project one secret source you can't share, but you've you've mentioned a list of ten. I I like lists and, and <laughs> share as many or few as you want. But I, what are those? Maybe we start with what are those top three that you know, any corporate listening? But I assume they apply to they other apply businesses. To they are, what, they they so there's there's no secret source because all of the, all of that is you, you put it into Google, you'll find it because it is the obvious things. You know, we know we've got to do stuff around buildings. Yeah, we know we've got to do stuff around transportation. So if you think of all the fleets. So BT is the biggest fleet in the country, Royal Mail, massive fleet in the country. We've got to look at data. We're, we're in this weird world, aren't we? We create so much data. Companies are storing more and more data. We're getting bigger and bigger data centers. But in reality, you've got to cool a data center, and therefore that generates heat. And therefore, what do you want to do with it all? So there's one I regularly use. How or when was the last time you deleted a photo off your phone? I doubt ever. And yet every one of those is four meg. And every one of those is, is there and is in the cloud. And all you do every time a certain fruit company says to you, you know, your storage is nearly full, <laughs> you click yes to the yeah, 99p more. I don't mind. But we've got to fundamentally change behaviors, haven't we? So, you know, you, it doesn't matter whether you're looking at it from a personal level or a corporate level, the question's the same. We keep finding better things to do with data. Therefore, the data analytics world gets bigger. But the more that we store, the more problem we've got. So what do we do with that? So there's, there's my three, but there are many, many 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 more in that top 10 well and i think that that last one and um, you're, you're quite right because and, and i'm gonna please nobody sort of i hope there's no backlash from this but i like the fact i can see the first photo i ever took on an iphone it was my 22nd birthday party with some friends but i i think that last point is, is also really interesting because you're quite right and i've, I've heard someone and, and again I'm, I'm throwing out lots of stats that i can't quite uh, qualify but something like netflix is one of the biggest polluters or, you know, polluted because of, like you said, the data centers to store all of the films, et cetera, for people to use. And I think it's an interesting one to open in that top three, because people often think, I don't know, fossil fuels and they, you know, they think transport, but rarely do they think data. And actually data has, it has become sexy to talk about big data and more data. And like you say, actually, there's probably things you could have less data and, and, it doesn't feel like it has an impact on your screen because it's virtual, but the, the knock-on is is physical. Right, there's two sides to that conversation. Though. One is the direction you're going there, which is have less of it or cleanse it out on a more frequent basis. You can go the other way, though, and kind of go, we just got to find a different solution to how we store data, where we store it, and how you cool the, cool the thing down, cool the data center down. So you can take somewhere like, I think it's Norway, where they've taken an old coal mine, They've gone down deep where it's, guess what, pretty cold. It happens to be near the sea, so they've thrown a turbine out into the sea and that pumps cold water down into that coal mine to run, you know, cold water cooling rather than electrical cooling. Now, there's a country that has an awful lot of old cold mines. I don't know if you know it. But again, we've got to be, someone's got to be innovative, but someone's got to put the investment in. So if we said we happen to live on an island that has a lot of coal mines or mines and disused that go right very deep, we happen to have a bunch of oceans running around us, why aren't we looking at 
kind of that kind of thing. How come they are and we're not? So again, you go back to that sharing thing. Is the world really sharing ideas? I'm not too sure it is. Would the government fund it? Should private sector fund it? Did Google come in and kind of say, or Amazon and kind of AWS just kind of go, do you know what, we'll we'll do that for you, but we want something in return. Again, it, it, it goes back to economics, doesn't it? You've got to have a business case. You've got to have ROI. No one's going to do anything for free. I don't imagine in the world we're suddenly going to say, let's stop flying. You know, you can now never leave the country ever again. You're in the you're you're in the UK. You stay in the UK. Every country stops flying. That's highly unlikely. We've just got to find a different way, whether it's different fuel, different type of transport, whatever it may be. Is the world going to stop innovating? No. You know, will somebody be working? We know that you know Rolls Royce are working on. They've got their own electric plane already, haven't they? There's others working on sending planes higher, so they you know float more. <laughs> my simple language. Um, so it's not always about stopping something. It's about finding a better solution for it. The journey to electric cars has probably taken off more in the last three to four years in the UK than, than anybody ever expected. In effect, we're probably running ahead of the, the ability of the infrastructure to keep up. And that will be the next problem, which will be, right, we've now got a critical mass. We're telling all the car companies that from 2030, they've got to do electric only. They're all going, yeah, okay. So I think Ford yesterday said they're going to stop the Fiesta because they want to create more capacity for the electric cars. That, that is terrible. As, as a Ford Fiesta driver in my youth, that is terrible news, I must say. <laughs> I think it was the most popular car ever sold by number by like four million or something crazy and it was most people's first car to where i read that yesterday somewhere but again that challenge will be the infrastructure so how do we actually get ahead of it again same question to the government fund it to the private sector fund it how do we make sure that it's affordable how do you get everybody onto that journey what do we do with the all of the the ice cars where do they all go you know the big ice grave graveyard in the sky somewhere but they've got to be taken apart so there's, there's a lot to do. And again, you come back to that is what we do. We'll run a program that helps anybody do any one of those things we've just talked about. We just got to get better at it and get quicker at it. Well, and I think it's a great point, James, because actually there, there is that practical element of, and I, I love the mineshaft example, because like you say, once, once you have got over the complexity of who pays and, and are we doing it, then like you say, it's, it's a project, cables have got to go in, right. you know, you've got to get the cooling in, et cetera. But I, I think implicit in that is something that, Again, I'm, I'm no expert on this topic, but I think a lot of people are looking for the new solution, the sort of the brand, you know, the, what's the innovation as opposed to, you know, how can we, what it's we still an innovation, but how can we use what we've got? How can we, you know, it's, it's not as sexy, you know, a solar panel is sexy, sticking stuff down a mine shaft wow. isn't sexy. But there's an interesting one, is it? So, you know, driving here today along the M4, you've obviously got one of the, I think the second biggest solar farm in the UK by Reading on the M4 and you drive past it and the first time you see it, you go, wow, that looks nice. Look at all the mirrors. And by the hundredth time you've gone past, you kind of go, that's a bit of an eyesore. <laughs> but if you if you think of flying over the UK, the most of the country is still green. As much as we all think we live in, you know, urban areas, you fly over the country, most of it is green. A lot of it is paid for to be left fallow because we don't farm it anymore. So why don't we just chuck solar panels on all of it? They don't have to be silver. Let's be let's be innovative. Let's find a way green, to turn it green. green. So they look like uh, I don't know if that's even possible to have a green solar panel. But again, that's somebody's job to kind of work out, isn't it? Because again, we're in an island that's surrounded by wind, by sea, by sun, albeit not as much as we'd like. We just need to, as you said, look at what we've actually got. What can we do now rather than worrying about who's going to come up with the next product that no one's ever had before in the world? 
No, I, th- I think so. And I, I think particularly given where we're recording this in our, our office in Bath, which is a, a well-known mining area. You know, I I live in an old mining village just up the road. I, I, I think there's a mine under the next village. It's that sort of place. So, you know, there's suddenly all of these, I guess, vacant, empty mines doing nothing. And yeah, how do we innovate, you know, be it that, be it the green solar panel. Maybe we'll we'll talk after this. We'll that can that can be our next invention. But I think that practical element is you know is is really powerful because there is probably a lot you can do quite quickly by thinking practically not sort of blue sky innovation which is sometimes where these conversations go no but again you go back to the that first one i mentioned buildings that it might not make a massive difference right but why couldn't we just say let's take the city of london as a as a big metropolis every rooftop has to have a rooftop garden let's go with that generic you know trees shrubs whatever it's covered in green rather than just covered in gray paint and and plant as a machinery plant, not a plant plant. That surely is something that's quite simple that if we wanted to do, we could do. And we just need to think of all of those things. But it needs, as you said, that that red box thinking needs to happen somewhere. It needs to be owned by someone. It needs to be driven by someone. Now, my point of view state kind of goes with that. That should be somewhat government-led. That should be Bayes kind of driving that conversation. And then you hand back out to the private sector to actually implement and kind of say, you know, now we've got our list, let's get on with doing some of that stuff. We could talk all day about this, but I think in the interest of your time, and I know you have a, a drive home and you need, you've got, you've got some errands to run in, in town before the shop shuts as well. So I, I don't want to keep you for the whole, whole time. And I, I'm going to bring us to, and I, I feel that it, <laughs> after talking about how do we save the world through mine shafts, I feel this next topic is much lighter and depending on your view, less significant, albeit as I run a marketing agency, I, I do think it has quite significance. Is that, at some points, and this seems like the only time I can ask you in today's conversation, I really wanted to dig into your LinkedIn videos because anyone oh, yeah. who yeah. you know has gone, any, anyone who's listening to this, they would have looked at your LinkedIn and gone, James is doing these videos. And I think they're great. I think they're really interesting. And the, the big thing that I'm interested in is you are probably the only consulting CEO I know who does this. You know, I, As someone who works in marketing, I've been shouting about it. I've Others much longer than me have been shouting about it before me, but you're the first CIO I know who's picked up their camera and just spoken to their their LinkedIn following. And so, it's a it's it's a simple question. But I'd love or to am know. I just talking to myself. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those deep philosophical questions. Yes, yeah. maybe. Well, maybe tell us the answer. What inspired you to do it? Why did you go right? I'm going to do these videos. Uh, two angles. One, I guess I was thinking as part of that conversation we we're having earlier about next generation, future growth. How do you take the company? How do you take project one to the next level? I was just trying to think of how do we improve our own brand awareness, if you want to call it kind of that. You can follow all the traditional things, but if you go back to the other conversation where you've got to stand out, whether as an individual or a company, I was just trying to find a way to do that. Now, my kind of secret side of getting away from work is rubbish TV, as we were talking about with um, Married at First Sight and Below Deck and Made in Chelsea. Uh, that's my way of switching off. But the other side is is YouTube. And it doesn't matter whether I'm watching something to do with watches, cars, aggregates. You know, there's three that I kind of watch on a regular basis. I've kind of got my my little suite that I follow. But it was watching them last year, ironically, that kind of gave me the idea because there are some guys out there like Daniel Luizzi, Yanomise, TGE. And, and it was all, their approach was very raw. It was very much just a camera conversation. If it had bloopers in it, don't worry about it. Just crack on. Now I'm not going to a YouTube world. I'm not, I'm not trying to create YouTube, but I kind of thought what was the equivalent that I could use for project one? 
Now, clearly, my life is just laden with travel every day. You know, most days I'm out somewhere. And it was really kind of a, what's that kind of world where you can kind of just talk about something that you're seeing, hearing, doing without getting in too much into the detail. So I tend to aim for four minutes. It's kind of where I'm going. It's that stuff that you can watch when you're on the train on the way home. It's not trying to write the world. It's not trying to be an academic. It's not trying to prove a theory. It's just the ramblings of a, of a consultant. And like I said, I started with the same fears. So I kind of, I sat there coming into Christmas last year and I thought, you know what, next year I'm going to do this. We'll do it for the year. And I started off with the view that I'd do one a week. Hence, they started with a 22.12. Within 12 weeks, I'd broken the, we're going to do one every week because I just couldn't keep up. So again, if anyone else is thinking about it, don't put too much pressure on yourself. Just go with it. You know, some weeks I put out two or three, some two, three weeks in a row, I might do nothing. I've got to have something to talk about. I'm not going to create it for the sake of creating it. It's not scripted. It is just talking into an iPhone. It takes five odd minutes, six minutes to kind of record the varying bits. I sit on the train on the way home. I use iMovie just to edit them together. I put in the title slide, which is easy, and I hit post. Now, as you said, I didn't know where they were going to go or what they're doing. I had no aspiration or expectation. I just wanted to kind of talk about some of the stuff that we see and do, you know, that impacts us. Interestingly, from an outcome point of view, is it has been a bit strange the number of people that you'll have a conversation with who kind of go, I watched your video. I watched your video. I've seen your videos. And that caught me by surprise. I did not expect that. I kind of just put them out there and in effect I let them go. As with anything to do with LinkedIn, they kind of build through through time. They they generally do three and a half to 7,000 views pretty quickly. Um, but then obviously they just disappear off the bottom and the, and the next one comes along. So they're not there for any particular reason. It is brand awareness. From my point of view, we cannot pay to advertise in, in, in an airport. I will never have a, you know, welcome to London. You're not HSBC list <laughs> all over Heathrow. Absolutely. Welcome to London. Here's project one. And, and therefore, we've got to find our way of getting our name out there. So if people see me and know that I'm Project One and that points them towards us and our service and our team and our people and our solutions, then absolutely great. If it doesn't, well, it doesn't matter. I've not lost anything. It's not cost me anything. I don't want to bring in a media team to start running a professional video shoot every week. Um, that is not the intent. It will run its natural course. I do think it is a let's do this for this year and then let's see what next year looks like it might be something slightly different it might be just a tweak on what we've got i don't know but i had the same fears that everyone could imagine which was nobody's watching nobody cares everyone thinks you're talking rubbish but in reality people don't they like it and you'll never please everybody so as long as there's enough people liking it and stuff i'm i'm okay doesn't need likes and comments it's just i like the fact that people watch it i mean firstly thank you because i think it's something that uh a lot of consultants, be it CEOs, be it analysts, any grade or lack thereof grade to our conversation earlier, I think have those fears over. So the fact you, you know, someone in your position doing it, seeing those results and uh, your point as well around, it's not all comments and likes on the, on the LinkedIn, it's, it's people. Cause I think sometimes it's so easy to be sucked into, oh, well, this did well because it got 50 of, you know, 50 comments, 50 likes naturally in a world which is relationship led. You're, you're probably better having one person go, I like that, James, or it's nice to see. But actually, the unseen results are sometimes forgotten. So it's quite powerful to know that as well. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not an analytics freak, but I do take a little glance every now and again. And all I look at is the fact that the cohort it seems to be hitting is the whole C-suite, MD, exec, 
you know, big corporate kind of world as well. Yeah. Ironically, big consulting firms are on there quite a lot, which I like because, again, goes back to that whole collaboration thing. I'm not here to try and say we're doing something fundamentally different to everyone else, but it is about just going out there and just being open, honest, talking about the stuff that we're all talking about anyway. I'm not coming up with any rocket science, but just go out there and, and be me. And I just, you know, I, I could have just put a written post up every week. I don't think it would have got anywhere near that kind of level because it is just slightly different but then as you said as much as you may say i'm the only one there are others and and it will grow in time and therefore i've got to go and find something different that then catches someone's eye i'm seeing a youtube channel with aggregates watches and wraps all in the same james well and to your point so you you touched on something though that i think does stop a lot of people and it's why i'm keen to dig into this because i i agree with you you've got to stand out got to be different and as more people do it those who aren't will be lagging behind as you touched on you know you'd you've got to have something to say. And sometimes when I speak to consultants informally, there's a there's almost part of it's imposter syndrome. What have I got to say? But I also think our industry has almost created a rod for its own back in the kind of obsession with thought leadership. So, you know, you you can't just have thought, you have to have a new thought. And I you mentioned you've just got com- you've got comfortable with with all of this. Kind of how do you approach that? How do you think, what am I going to speak about today? And how are you comfortable with the fact that it might not be, you know, the Isaac Newton theory, level theory on something? And it is, you know, it, it isn't that level of thought leadership. Or- I, I don't overthink it. I mean, it's as simple as that. Let's go back to the, these are not prepped, you know, in that sense. Yeah, I've got kind of a list of things that over time I'll kind of go, oh, I'll just add that to the list. It may happen. It may never happen. But if you kind of track back through them, they're all generally about something that is happening at that point in time whether it's to do with the fact that we're all in 2023 planning at the moment it's one of the recent ones it could be a whole erp thing because we're all driving towards you know s4 hana journeys by 2027 it could be about things that we see going wrong a lot of the time and if people just listen to what goes wrong a lot of the time you can actually stop it happening you know they're all very very common topics as you said there is no isaac newton moments in amongst this and again i had to get over that whole thing of where i you know you had that fear of are you just going to get trolled to death and are people just going to tell you you're wrong and oh this is boring and oh you know i've seen this and there's nothing no rocket science yeah there's not meant to be rocket science it's just a guy talking and and showing you know having having a conversation in effect with myself but it's a conversation none of those conversations aren't ones that have already happened in a customer environment, you know, at any given point in time. And I'd have with anybody at any given point in time. You've, you've, you've actually touched on something there. And I, I'm going to ask this because I, I very often in what I do get the question or, or get people who have a sort of assumption around the expectations of CEOs and, and customers, executive customers. They say, you know, our marketing or our deliverables or a certain thing has to be a certain way because it's a CEO seeing it. So they have to, you know, has to be polished, has to be slick. And, and you, you touched on the fact you you're getting feedback on it. So if I'm, I'm assuming here and tell me if I'm wrong, but you, you know, you've been speaking to your clients, the senior people, they're watching your videos. And as we touched on at lunch, you know, what struck me about your videos as well. And you mentioned there is you pull your iPhone out, you chat for three, four minutes, you, you put a, a cover slide and you fire it on that for many consultants, I think would be quite alien because it is, you know, inverted commas unpolished. And I just, I'd love to get your take on, that and almost what you hear from your CEO clients, you know, are they saying, God, James, this is, you know, love this, but it's too unpolished for me. Actually, are they just normal humans? They don't care how polished it is sort of what would you say to anyone who has that concern of I'd love to do this, but because it's not got all of these fancy bits with it, I can't. Most people don't come in. Occasionally, you'll get the small cohort that kind of say it is unpolished. And you know, you need to tidy it up. Kind of thing. 
And that's not necessarily customers, that's just general feedback. But in reality, most would never mention it. And I think most don't mention it because they actually just like the fact you are just having a conversation. And it is like you'd be having it in an office or in a street or on the way to the tube. I think at the point where you get to the polished stuff, then you're getting to, I think as you kind of describe it, a proper marketing video that's then scripted and it's got a beginning, middle and end and all that kind of malarkey about it. And that's not what this is trying to be because I think those corporate videos belong in a completely different space. I think if you go back to our earlier conversation, we're a boutique, we're an SME, we've got far more flexibility. Do I think I could do this if I was working in a big firm? No. I imagine there'd be a whole raft of people who'd want to critique it long before it ever got released and you know, it would have far more rules and regulations about it. But I also know, you know, I'm, I'm not saying anything controversial. I'm not going out there to, to do anything maliciously. It's just a conversation. And I guess to your point, thought leadership, I don't know. I mean, it, I guess age catches up with all of us, doesn't it? As you said earlier, we used to look up at the, the, the big CEOs and the C-suites and, and the lieutenants and the divisional kind of guys all those years ago and think I could never be one of them. And, you know, you never thought, you, or you always thought they'd be above you. I'm kind of now getting to the age where, there aren't that many above me and ironically i know a lot of them because i've grown up with them which again changes the conversation that you're having with them and so it's not thought leadership it's just common sense conversation and you're talking about topics that you know they're thinking about i know there's a whole bunch of companies out there going and going how am i going to get s4 hannah in by 2027 it sounds simple but i think is a really powerful point and for anyone listening also those who aren't as you know aren't ceos they're earlier in their careers yeah, anyone, yeah. you know client problems are always you know, take take what you do as an organization project and program management has existed since the you know, probably the dawn of time with the egyptians and, yeah, and pyramids and, and actually the things that concern ceos executives certain things are always the same and others like you say are event driven but you can probably guess or know what they are if you have two or three chats and then sharing ideas tips to help with that so that that, that goes back to kind of one of the key principles of project one it is about joining dots it is about sharing ideas i've got absolutely no issue in joining different functions so you can take a cfo from from a national grid and introduce them to the cfo at astrazeneca and kind of go you're both doing a finance transformation you know have a chat and it's done in a completely friendly way so again it's not it's not with intent it's not there to create anything it's just to say I know you guys are thinking the same thing. I know you've got the same problems. You know, go and look at and learn about how each other works. And again, because that that doesn't exist to them in the normal world. And because of the privileged position we sit in, we know who they all are. And and conversely, the other way, if anyone comes and says to me, do you know anyone in this position or that company or this industry? Again, we can go, yeah, chances are we do. And therefore, we can just kind of join people together for conversations. They're all They're all Chatham House rules. It's all, you know, managed. But again, it is about how we help those customers, those clients, those organizations to all succeed because the world's too small. Oh, no, I know. I fully agree, James. And then, you know, after those discussions under Chatham House rules, you've, you know what people are concerned about and you have videos. And I think you're probably to, to close this, something you said much earlier on, but I, I think people so often forget in the digital world is 
actually you touched on it that there's no cost to these videos so as long as you yeah. are as long as you have an iphone ex well, exactly yeah well yes as long, and as a long, selfie stick as, I, I was gonna I, I when i was watching them actually ahead of this i i was going to ask you if there's a selfie stick i thought I, I, it depends some of them do some of them don't I've, I've done all sorts it depends where you are and what you're doing and what you've got <laughs> but I, I think that point around is you know as long as you're not saying anything that is rude defamatory or or, or going to you know cause upset for, for someone you care about. And I deliberately say that because people can get upset. Yeah. People, are, there are professional getting upsetters. And so as long as it's not going to harm your company, your clients, your career, the, the cost is zero. And the worst that happens is, is it's forgotten. And with that context, there can only be upside. If you're happy to give your five minutes, there can only be upside from that. So I think a really interesting conversation as well for anyone listening and anyone who wants to to do the same. So we will see how many more people... Do the same or find their own thing that works for them. You know, it works for me. I'm a picture-orientated person. I'm visual. Therefore, that resonates with me the same as YouTube does. Uh, you know, writing a article, you know, a couple of thousand things, that doesn't resonate with me at all. I tried that and it didn't work and I didn't, didn't like it. Well, and you know, you're, you're currently seeing what, what my preferred is. But you're, I think actually a brilliant point as well of our industry's default is blogs. At some point, you mentioned, you know, sort of how the industry's changed. At some point, someone said all content must be a blog. And actually, not everyone has left that yet. Whereas, like you say, some people prefer pictures, some people prefer audio. You know, Our brains are all wired in a very different way. I, I know that and I've worked that out a long time ago from my own kind of childhood and school kind of world. Everybody is different and you've got to find the bit that works for you and works for your audience. Will my stuff or our stuff, to be fair, work for everyone? No, absolutely not. We also, as an organization in Project One, know the types of customers and clients that like us and want to work with us. I also know the ones who wouldn't like us and wouldn't want to work with us. You know, Again, it's a well-trodden path. We need to just focus on the bits that do work and not worry too much about the bits that don't, because as you said, there's plenty to go around. Completely. Well, we're coming to the last two questions, James. And just because we've said so the first one, and just because you've talked about uh, your style, your preference for pictures and, and your love of YouTube. And after this as well, I'll give you some some crap TV recommendations as well. Uh, there's a fantastic series on Netflix called Indian Matchmaking, which if you love love at first sight or first dates, I highly recommend. But um, this question's usually about books, but I'm going to broaden it out and you you steer me with the, the medium. But the question is, what is the book or books that either have had the biggest impact on you or you've gifted most often. And as I say, it doesn't have to be books, but... Well, that's good because I, <laughs> I don't do books. I struggled with books even in school and it's never, never changed. The only one I ever in the industry read and liked, which is really simple, it's, it's kind of like quite a junior book to read, was the whole My Iceberg is Melting. And I have given that to a, a lot of consultants in their late 20s just to kind of go... You've been here a few years. You kind of know, you think you know what you're doing. Now have a read of this. And it's like, it is literally like a one night you'll read this book. But it just puts it all into, into context really, really quickly. And it's simple because it, in my mind, anyway, it paints the picture of what's happening with the characters. You know, so it's more fiction than non-fiction. But that's really as far as books go, right? I am, as I said, a TV stroke YouTube stroke video kind of more orientated and that then takes you to some of the podcast stuff so putting aside my my aggregates and uh, watches and cars world there's then you know the high performing podcast i think that's fantastic that links back personally for me because i liked my sport and therefore hearing predominantly 
ex-professional sports people come on and talk about exactly the same challenges, the same fears, the same barriers, and their way to kind of move their world forward is is fantastic. And you know, there's over a hundred episodes of that. So knock yourself out; they're all an hour long. And if you're that way inclined, they will resonate, you know, with a lot of people. But other than that, no, just go and find a YouTube channel. There are a lot of them. But then again, there is a lot of them on every topic. You've got to find the presenter that resonates with you. And again, I go for the more informal, the more characterful people. But I think there's a lot that we can all learn. As much as people can sit there going, what's he doing watching all of them? The amount of stuff that that kind of transports across from those watching those videos into our world or gives me ideas of things we can look at is is amazing. I never thought that would happen, but it, it's there in space. I, I think the firstly, the book I love because I, I actually have never had that recommended. Um, so yeah, I... I don't usually open this question up, but I've got to ask it. Why you specifically said you give that to people in their late 20s? And maybe if, if this spoils the book, stop me. No, but don't spoil the why, book. Why late 20s? I, I think, as I said, at that point in time, you've got a cohort of people who think they know what they're there to do. But in reality, they've only seen the top of the iceberg. And there's far more to it. And therefore, they need to understand it. It's a bit like when it, it's a bit like kind of coming into Project One. I, my focus when I came in was about delivery and, and doing that kind of thing. I didn't understand the finance side of it. You know, and on that journey, you've got to find out what, what finance means. And then finance breaks down into subsets, doesn't it, of which bits you need to know. And then as you go further on, you want to know more on one particular type. That book at that age, I think, just starts to say to people, there is more to this industry than you think. It's not just about delivery. That whole relationship side, that whole business development side, that whole you know, everything all starts to come together and you can't do what we all do without knowing it all. And you're not going to know that at 27. I think really puts the recommendation into context. Definitely one to, I'm going to go and get a copy for that and might be want to pass out to the team. I've had, um, I've had others recommend, uh, who moved my cheese, which feels quite similar. Um, I don't know if that's one you've ever similar sort of, you know, wafer thin can be, you know, can be read in an evening. And I'm also a big fan of the high performance podcast. We'll, we'll trade podcasts after this, but it, your YouTube point as well, that different people appeal to different people. And I think it worked, you know, as we talked about with LinkedIn works both ways. So no, I, I think some great recommendations and no, it doesn't have to all be books. I realize the longer I run this podcast, it's not all books. Not all books. Um, some of us don't do words. <laughs> and this last question, and I'll ask it as I normally do, although I, I appreciate it. It perpetuates what we talked about around consulting grade structures. And after our conversation, I feel maybe I need to completely extrapolate grades from this because it was easy and you know it was the world I grew up in it's where I started so the question is if you have three people in front of you and, and one is just starting out in their consulting career so I, I don't know them as an analyst or a you know graduate then you have a second person who is sort of mid to late 20s for one of a better word so I would have called them a manager when I was in consulting but they've kind of a bit to your you know book recommendation they've they've learned a bit but they've not learned everything and then the third person is somebody who is approaching a senior leadership role. So I would have called it a partner in a, a traditional firm, but you know, you might say someone joining your senior leadership. And the question is, what one piece of advice would you give to each of them? I think the, the one starting out, just get as much exposure as you can. Don't get pigeonholed. Just jump around. Go and say, see the world, but see consulting. Go and see different client and customer environments, work in different teams, get the exposure, get to understand that different things happen in different ways. I'll probably go a bit higher, go mid-range, kind of that senior manager kind of stage. Decide what you want to be, but do it in its fullest context. So don't, again, don't pigeonhole yourself. 
it's a long way from there to retirement. <laughs> so leave yourself with some room, wiggle room to move. And at that point, do what makes you enjoy it. I, for, for I don't know how many years I've not had one of those Sundays where you kind of go, oh, God, it's Monday tomorrow. It's because I love what I do. I enjoy what I do and I want to do tons of it. And they need to find that at that age because you do need to start settling down, don't you, at some point. The one heading for partner track, I, I'll be a little bit controversial. I think you need to decide whether you want to do what type of firm you want to do that in. Knowing what I know now, I think there are far more and better opportunities in the SME world than anywhere else. And therefore, don't get stuck on the name. Don't get stuck on the title of partner or senior partner or equity partner or anything else. Just actually go and look at what you want to do and what you actually want to be known for because you're going to be in it or you want to be in it for a, a long time from that point onwards. And that will be the making of your career, I guess, won't it, at that point. So go and find the one that fits you best and then just go all in. You've got to be fully invested into it. There's, there's, no, um, there's no turning back at that point. So totally in. Well, James, I think some great advice and a great place for us to finish today. So thank you very much. Um, no, thank you. It's been great fun. Thank you also for coming all the way to Bath. Um, it, was, <laughs> it was lovely to have lunch with you before. Um, it's been a great conversation. And I guess just for anyone, probably the last thing to ask is for anyone who has sort of listened to this, they want to find out more about you. They want to find out more about Project One. Where would you point them to? Where can they get in touch? Project One, just go through the website. You know, We're, we're having that rebuilt, so wait for the relaunch, but you can go and have a look at the current version. Me personally, feel free to stalk me on LinkedIn and contact me through there. Uh, no problem at all. Fantastic. Well, we'll put links to both the current Project One website and uh, your LinkedIn on the show notes. And yes, thank you very much for this, James. It's been great and, and all the best for the rest of your week. Thank you very much. Much appreciated. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's Nick at createengage.co.uk and I really look forward to hearing from you.